we got data back from thousands of qualitative responses. So that's just being able to hear in people's own words what they were feeling. And it was pretty devastating. 89% said their well-being had declined. We're looking at 85% said their job demands had increased, that it was getting worse. We're seeing 67% of people not being able to talk about their mental health at work. And of that group, that entire group, they described being extremely often or often burned out. Only 2% of people in our data across 46 different countries said that their well-being was excellent. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of business leadership and practical love. Please share this episode with a friend so we can continue to spread the Love in Action message globally. So this is going to be an interesting episode. We're going to talk about workplace burnout, a topic that I have covered repeatedly in my columns. I've had previous guests talk about it. My clients talk about it. What's interesting here is that workers have been burned out for years, but the pandemic turned burnout into an epidemic we can no longer ignore. My guest today is a real burnout expert, and she argues that it's time to completely rethink burnout. And the first step is to face this inconvenient truth. Burnout is not an individual problem. It's a cultural problem, a cultural and systemic problem that only organizations can fix. People are burning out right now at epidemic level rates, not because they fail to manage their own stress, although I'm sure that's a little bit has to do with it, but it's because of the way leaders run the workplace. And I can't wait to dive into this topic with none other than Jennifer Moss. I've been following Jennifer's work for the last couple of years, and I'm elated that she's here to tackle this critical topic that you all need to hear. Jennifer has a new book out, The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. Now, if you're just being introduced to Jennifer Moss, she is an award-winning journalist, author, and international public speaker. She is a nationally syndicated radio columnist reporting on topics related to happiness and workplace well-being. You've probably caught many of her articles in places like HuffPost, Forbes, Fortune, and Harvard Business Review. And I'll have you know her previous book, Unlocking Happiness at Work, received the Distinguished UK Business Book of the Year Award. Jennifer has been named a Canadian Innovator of the Year, an International Female Entrepreneur of the Year, and she's a recipient of the Public Service Award from the Office of President Obama. She now joins us. Jennifer, such an honor. Welcome to the Love and Action Podcast. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be terrific. Me too. Well, listen, I can't wait to get into it and the book and all the stories that you have to share. But first, this question, tradition on the show. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Maybe. What? what yeah. 
What's your story? Well, you know, I have a actually a unique catalyst story. You know, in about 2009, living in California with my husband, he's a pro lacrosse player, actually. So that's mm. what brought us there. Had our kids and we're, you know, living, doing really well. My husband was in peak con- physical condition. He had come off of winning the gold medal in the World Cup for Canada. So wow. really doing well. All of a sudden, became acutely paralyzed from Guillain-Barre after swine flu and he had H1N1. I mean, it's just his whole body to shut down. And it was paradigm shifting for us. We went into this place of wondering what this meant. How was he going to survive? He was told he wasn't going to walk again. His whole identity really as a pro athlete was framed around this. And we got into the hospital. And one of the things that he was really good at was this psychological fitness piece. He couldn't control his body at the time. But one of the things we know, and you probably talk about this on your show, is just how athletes get this really great sort of development. They get identified as a high performer and then they end up getting these psychological fitness, social, emotional tests that train them throughout their whole lifetime. And so he was able to really focus on how do I reframe? What can I focus on that that's good versus what I, I don't have control over? And he walked out of the hospital after six weeks. And that was really critical, that mindset piece. And just happiness in general really taught us a lot. We moved back home and shifted our priorities. And when we got home, came to understand that happiness is really in love, you know, in action is really about resetting priorities and understanding what makes us happy. And that we spend about 50% of our waking hours at work and it's really depleting us. How do we make sure that that place where we spend so much of our time is, is happy and healthy? And so that's been the precipitating event that really led both of us to change everything and go into research and understanding just how to make an organization more psychologically fit and be able to rebound from traumatic events. I appreciate the story and I'm so glad that he recovered and was able to bounce back. So that's a little bit of background maybe on how you arrived at perhaps your last book and doing some of the research for that. But walk us through your journey to current times because I think you you might have started the book pre-pandemic and then boom, <laughs> it hits. But walk us through the the research on burnout that goes back pre-pandemic and then what happened as you write the book? Really what I love is all the time that I spend in academic research working with academic partners. I call myself that person that takes the language of academia that can be hard to, to for the everyday person to digest and really try to do the work over there and then make it understandable with the public. And so when I started to really dive into the research around well-being and, and health and happiness, I saw that people were inside of organizations were getting it very wrong. We're tackling it very far downstream. And sometimes that can feel like toxic positivity where it's like, well, let's just practice gratitude for this year. And then that'll change the dynamic of our workplace and make us happier. Well, if you're not actually tackling overwork and cult of of working 80-hour weeks, or you're still systemic discrimination or bullying or all these root causes of burnout, then you're never actually going to solve anything. And so I really started to zone in, like, how far back can I go inside of someone's journey? And, and usually it's when they're really not well. That's what we need to do is either prevent that or help people get there. So that's been four years. And I've been writing about, you know, mm. I actually wrote an article in 2018 about how to deal with burnout for remote employees, you know, and then here we are. It's like, it's so impactful now because I sort of I had been in this space for a long time. But when the actual book writing was happening, and I'm a mom of three, and my kids were home for a very long period of time, 
And I had to constantly not be a walking irony of burnout. Like I had to just always use my coping tools because it was so hard. And I think that's where the book has some depth is that I have felt it. Now I've experienced it. Us collectively have experienced it. And then you can bring all the research into the book to then show how to fix it. And I'll vouch for Jennifer. I mean, the book, it's full of research and she references research from everywhere. And she does it in a way that is very understandable to the layperson. So that's what I appreciate about the book and how you have kind of reinterpreted all of that scholarly stuff, like you said, to the everyday uh, reader. Okay, so let's talk about your own research. I mean, what did you set out to find and what were the results of that? You know, I had the privilege of working with the foremost experts in burnout. They were the ones involved actually in the WHO, the World Health Organization definition of burnout. So they've been Mm -hmm. in this for decades. Uh, Dr. Christina Maslock, Dr. Michael Leiter. And then I also worked with an expert in organizational behavior, Dr. Uh, David Whiteside, because I wanted to like learn about the practice and like what people were actually experiencing in the work, as well as sort of looking through academic scales at, at how you define burnout and measure it within organizations. So we had the privilege. I have a really great publisher, Harvard Business Review Press, and they have obviously a lot of access to folks around the world. So we were able to distribute that data gathering through them. 46 different countries we got data back from, thousands of qualitative responses. So that's just being able to hear in people's own words what they were feeling. And it was pretty devastating. 89% said their well-being had declined. We're looking at 85% said their job demands had increased, that it was getting worse. We're seeing 67% of people not being able to talk about their mental health at work. And of that group, that entire group, they described being extremely often or often burned out. Only 2% of people in our data across 46 different countries said that their well-being was excellent. So you imagine most people are really unwell. And I think it was, again, shocking, not surprising, maybe. We were concerned. And what Dr. Leiter said, which I thought was really fascinating, he said, you know, I've seen burnout data for a long time, but I've never seen more cynical data. And the cynicism piece is that hopelessness piece and that feeling like you have no control or that things aren't going to change. That was the part that really was unsettling because when you get there, that's where you hit a cliff, you know, where you don't feel like there's any hope. And so that's really what I'm hoping to tackle you know, and fixing this because we can't have a hopeless workforce. That's really catastrophic. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we can't. As you collected the data, I want to do something here that really connects to the heart of our listener, okay? Because you've probably heard some heart-wrenching stories as you did your interviews and collected your survey responses and all that. Do you have one that really got to you? Yeah, I did. I had this one woman describe how she <laughs> was working and that she was sitting upstairs in her kitchen. She had a baby at home and she was already back to work, but there was no care for a baby. So she had this eight month old that's sitting basically in this high chair with her almost all day long as she's trying to manage that and then working on Zoom all day long. She's seeing that she can't really help her baby. Her husband's downstairs in the basement in back-to-back meetings too. She's feeling like she's failing basically at everything. And we did see a lot of women describe the same issue. It's why we're seeing this exit of women across the workplace. We're at 1988 
female labor force participation again, like that's just really damaging. And a lot of women describing this feeling of this juggling demands of having to deal with their babies now, you know, next to them with no care. And they're trying to do both things and not feeling successful. There was a lot of sense of lack of self-efficacy and not able to do a good job at anything. Those kind of themes really, really were unsettling. And a lot of people describing high levels of loneliness, really just high levels of isolation and feeling kind of alone in their own feelings, alone in their own fears and anxieties, but then also not being able to connect with their coworkers or their boss or those serendipitous moments where you just pop by someone's desk and you can ask about their kids and you can get things off your chest. None of that was happening. And that was really what was hard to read in the data. That is heart-wrenching. And so that gets us to the point I made in the introduction and kind of pointing us back to organizations having to fix these things that are going on. Because conventional thinking around workplace burnout for years has put the blame and focus kind of on the employee. You know, it's their problem, right? That they probably overwork and take on too much stress and can't manage themselves and their emotions. It's their fault. But you're finding that it's not, that it's really an organizational problem. Talk us through that. Yes, you cannot solve burnout with self-care alone. We can do our best to develop our psychological fitness. And I really believe that it's not helpful to have learned helplessness and just sort of give up. I mean, granted that happens with chronic stress over time is that's just a, a symptom of burnout, but we can't just say, well, our employer is responsible for our happiness because we still have a life that we have to lead. You know, we need to increase our life satisfaction and participate in things, but you could be doing all that work. And then you go into work and your boss still expects you to work 80 hours. You're getting these demands put on you as complete surprises. So you have no agency you're being micromanaged. You know, you're you're being told that you're going to be passed over for a promotion because you know that it's to do with the color of your skin or your choices that you make in life about who you want to be in a relationship with. These all these things mm. play into that. And so you cannot that we cannot put that on the individual to solve those things. Leaders inside of organizations need to remedy those problems. And it really leads back to Hertzberg's I really love this sort of research around motivation, hygiene factor theory, and the idea that a lot of organizations don't have their hygiene right. Like the basic stuff needs to be right. You want to go into work and not be worried that you're going to be bullied by a coworker. I mean, there should be table stakes stuff, but those things aren't really being paid attention to. Instead, we're focusing on motivation. But what Herzberg says, you cannot have motivation without hygiene. So what's happening is it's just the cyclical thing that nothing gets resolved because you're constantly dealing with that those perks versus really dealing with the table stake stuff that need to be remedied. And I would wager to bet that hygiene has a lot to do with what I'm about to bring to the table here. And that's the six root causes that lead to burnout. Set the table for us. What I want to do is I want to go over each of the six and then we'll just kind of talk through each of the six, but talk to us about what's the origin of this. Because the data for the six root causes, the, the research that this comes from, it is immense. It's an incredible series of researchers that have looked into what are those root causes. You know, Dr. Maslock and Leiter have done a lot of work. Dr. Susan Jackson, Gallup has done a lot of work on that. I've even, you know, done my own research just around where I see some of the biggest predictors. I mean, and it varies from one group to another, but those six root causes are really where you see the WHO landing. And I think that they're really comprehensive. 
and they give you a really good, I think, power as a leader when you know that it isn't just overwork because we always just think it's workload. When you realize that you have five other constraints that are barriers that you might not realize, it does help you to ask more questions and better questions so that you can actually solve for all of those competing issues that are happening potentially within you know your team or each individual that you're working with. So we're going to unpack each one of those. And hey, if you're listening and you're in a HR role or you're the CEO or even a manager, okay, tune into this, please, because this may be what's going on in your organization right now. Okay. So the first one is an obvious one, Jennifer. It's workload. Workload is the leading cause now, of course. It was the leading cause pre-pandemic. And I would probably guarantee it's going to be the leading cause in the future of work. But it has catastrophic impacts. I mean, the ILO just released in 2019 that it's responsible for the death of 2.8 million workers a year overwork. So it's a major issue. It puts a lot of expense on the healthcare system and outlays and what we are spending at organizations on medical leave and managing long-term disability claims, et cetera. So it's financial implications. But just in general, when you're looking at people and the expectation, the cult of overwork that we're seeing in industries like healthcare, like tech, like finance, in education, those are the places where people are extremely burnt out to the point where there's these trickle-down effects, for example, in healthcare where we're shutting down hospitals because there's not enough nurses that can show up to support people in these communities. So overwork is a really big problem. It's just, you know what it is, <laughs> too much unsustainable workloads. It is a big cause of why people are burning out this year. So let's frame this discussion also with providing some solutions for each one. Because, I mean, remote, remote workers are on 24-7, Jennifer, and many of them don't really take the time off that they need to recover because <laughs> of their workload. Some companies offer Fridays off, but the workload is still the same, or maybe it's more. And so people then, okay, they got Fridays off. Great. Well, now they're working Saturdays or Sundays, right? So what's the solution to all this? You know, well, and I and I have so many prescriptions in the book, but there's a lot of small micro-targeted tactics that I suggest we do. Yeah, you have to fix the macro issues at policy mm-hmm. level, et cetera. But we should establish guidelines. I mean, right now, there's a lot of countries that are adopting this right to disconnect policy, which allows employees to sue their employers if they're being asked to work at these extraordinary hours. I say to leaders, I beg you, don't wait until there has to be a law put in place for you to just have simple guidelines around what is respectful and what is sustainable for your employees. You should have these conversations about when it's okay to tune out and that should be protected. We should encourage managers and leaders to model the behavior because we can't be what we can't see. We all know this in so many different places in every organization. Women can't be CTOs if there's only 20% of women in tech. We need to do the same when it comes to wellness. Employers and managers need to model. I'm not going to take an email on vacation. I am going to really use my out of office and protect that time. I'm going to protect your time. Also, even just making sure that you have audits around how much time you're collaborating. The amount of collaboration now is just skyrocketed. And mm-hmm. it was already bad. We had meeting fatigue before. Now we have this overlooping, over collaborating. Everyone has to be on Zoom. We need to have better strategies too around how we're collaborating, making sure there's asynchronous meetings. It's a gift when you get your time back. So don't be put off if you don't get invited to a meeting. 
consider that time theft if someone asks you to be a meeting that you don't need to be at. Making sure that the number of attendees that are there, that we realize what is really reasonable and then use other modes of communication. We're bored of video conferencing. So listen to a podcast and communicate in other ways, you know, have a conversation by phone, a good old fashioned cell phone and a walk. These are again, like very tactical things that can be implemented right away, but it's the intention that makes the changes. So Mm. everyone has to commit to it and then you'll see the solutions actually play out. The second root cause of burnout is perceived lack of control. Walk us through that. Well, we're seeing that with people feeling much more micromanaged lately because leaders are trying to lead from afar and that's tricky. And we did have this bias that if you're in the office, you're more promotable or you work harder than those people that work remote. We've leveled the playing field, but as we're seeing hybrid come back and some people are still opting to be remote and some people are opting to be in the office, we're seeing this sort of level micromanagement of those people at home or complete ignorance of those people being at home a big problem. And when you feel like you don't have choice in like how you get to your goals, or if you have someone telling you how to break out those functions to get to that overall goal, that can feel you have no inspiration in what you do. You're not connected intrinsically to the job. It's just actually doing the work in these components that is not, again, in your control. We also feel this in the flexibility piece, which was a problem before where you didn't have a choice in in being able to have more flexible hours. So we've gotten a lot more flexibility, which has improved people's sense of agency. But what we've also seen is an increase in bossware and people actually watching you while you're working at home. That's not healthy either. But that lack of agency, I would say just being able to have more flexibility has played a big role. As organizations now say that they're coming back, where organizations are saying, come back to work full time, and you're seeing this mass exodus, a lot of it is because people want that flexibility. So. Here's one that stood out for me that still falls under a perceived lack of control. It's to have dissenting voice. In other words, give employees a voice to express a disagreement because people are sometimes, most of the time, well, I shouldn't paint with a a broad brush here, but so often employees are basically told to toe the line. And so you can't disagree or having a dissenting opinion on something. And so you use the example of you have a great case study on NASA and how meetings, their meetings, you actually, they have what's called a black hat. Someone actually wears a black hat. I don't know if that's literal or figurative speaking or not, but do you have an example of that and why that's important to have a dissenting opinion? Psychological safety is really important. And a culture of feedback is very difficult for organizations to have because A lot of high-performing people are really good at hearing healthy feedback. But when it comes to constructive feedback, if they have any level of perfectionism, they take that as sort of all or nothing statements. But if we create environments where people that tend to dominate conversations have to hold back, and you also have people that never speak up, get the chance to actually be able to play this role of speaking, you make it more comfortable for people to feel like that they can share feedback, that they can speak up, that they can be heard. And not every person that just has that big voice is being listened to in an organization. It really flattens the relationship of feedback and makes hearing difficult feedback more normalized. And then you can have really healthier, more innovative, more competitive and safer organizations like in the NASA description. You know, this is a life or death kind of situation where you want those people in safety to be able to speak up and say the phone doesn't work very well 
you know, you could crash. These are the things that we need to think about in organizations. It's not life or death, but you could get some really brilliant ideas that could make a better product or make you a more competitive company. Yeah. And the last example I want to touch on from uh, perceived lack of control is, well, obviously, if you have a micromanaged, a very toxic micromanaged environment, there's really lack of autonomy, which you know leads to burnout factors. So walk us a little bit about that, how when you give employees more autonomy, it leads to less burnout. More autonomy also means less boredom. And when we're bored, it's like a big predictor for burnout. You know, you just make people intrinsically connected to their job and being able to figure out how they want to get to those goals in their own way and their own path is really helpful. Plus, even just biologically, we work better at certain times of day than other people. So saying that it has to be done in this systemic or systematic way, it might not work for someone. You know, you're you're really sort of cutting off your own ability to have the most excellent employees by telling them how to do it because it's your way. And also micromanagers themselves are more likely to burn out because they're not delegating. They're so focused on the being in the weeds that they're not actually being leaders. They're managing all the time. And we want leadership. You want someone that's thinking forward and future facing and they end up just feeling like they are the only ones that can do the job and that burns them out. So you think that you're more efficient or you're getting more out of your team and you're actually making it so that they don't feel excited about their work and you don't feel excited about your work. So it's a lose-lose. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the third root cause of burnout. Jennifer, this one seems like a a no-brainer. It's common sense, but it's not common practice. It's lack of reward or recognition. Absolutely. I mean, here's that Herzberg's theory of hygiene. We should pay people for what they're worth. And when we're working them 70 hours a week, which is unsustainable, this idea of the salary that you get every year, and then you're asking people to work in their, their time outside of work. Well, that should be currency. Their time should be currency. And we don't look at it like that. And you look at teachers, and I use that as an example. You know, a lot of teachers in the US right now are working minimum wage because of how much overtime they do. It's basically a lot of teachers are even taking second, third jobs to be able to, you know, hit those goals. I have one story about a woman that was donating blood to Mm. be able to make enough money so that she could teach and pay for this these extra pencils and crayons and all these other things for her students. I mean, these are very important people. And when we look at in our society and when we don't value them like that, that puts a huge strain on our most fundamental and most vulnerable group, our young people in in our country. And so these are things that we don't really think about, you know, when it comes to that particular piece, but also just that we want to recognize people And stop using the same metrics. You know, we constantly recognize people for growth or revenue, and we don't recognize people for going above and beyond for a fellow coworker in a time of need. Let's look at different ways that we can celebrate people. Let's celebrate the CEO that doesn't answer an email on his vacation or her vacation. That's what we need to be thinking about is changing the reward metrics and also looking at, are we rewarding the same people that look the same, that sound the same? That is also a signal that you have to be a certain person to be able to be rewarded and recognized. And sometimes those metrics have bias that we don't realize. We need to change the bias in our metrics so that we are creating more of a diverse group of people that we're recognizing in our organizations. Okay, I'm going to bring this back to pay, or I guess pay in the form of rewards and recognition. But when we hear rewards and recognition, we think of gratitude being expressed. Mm -hmm. Attaboy, job well done, things like that. But I mean, this 
And I can't think of a better example of love in action than this. So I want to ask you to share the story of Elaine Davis. She is a chief or was, maybe she still is, a chief HR officer who identified a a need in low-income single moms who just weren't making ends meet. And then she did something. I really loved my conversation with Elaine Davis. I mean, she's a brilliant thinker. And then, I mean, the branch app is so amazing, which is a challenger bank. Basically, they came up with this application that allows you to take 50% of your pay on any day that you've worked, essentially. So what Elaine wanted to do in this partnership is be able to work with her 60-something thousand call center workers who are now remote. And she was trying to figure out how to help them in a way that made sense to them. And, you know, there were other various things that she did around childcare and support and stuff, but she made it so that these people who were literally paycheck to paycheck and often weren't even making it to the next paycheck, especially during COVID where these issues would come up where they'd have to pay for urgent healthcare and they might've had some level of healthcare, but those co-pays are very expensive for people that are paycheck to paycheck and made it so that they could use this challenger app whenever that there's sorry this um, branch app and whenever that they needed it they could access some pay midweek and it took care of a lot of those demands that were coming up for people a lot of what she found too is their partners in the home a lot of single moms but a lot of partners in the home had lost their work and they were the single income earners so to be able to think okay how do i change the way that i pay people because i went from ha- a pharmaceutical company where everyone had lots of money. So this wasn't an issue to now working with people where this is probably their first and last job. They were people that didn't have that kind of income coming in thinking just how to be more empathetic to their needs. And, you know, I interviewed some of the people that were using it and said, it just really helped them a lot throughout this pandemic, just being able to access the money that they had. She says, it's your money. You've earned it. Yeah, I'm just giving it to you on demand. You know, like, why do I have to wait for two weeks and hold on to it? There's no reason for me to do that. It's your money. You earned it. You can have it. I love it. Okay, the fourth root cause of burnout is poor relationships. Again, no brainer. Yes, poor relationships. That can be workplace bullying. Often we assume bullying is kind of this overt bullying where it's physical abuse or mental abuse. Someone's yelling at you and the hallways in the office or people fighting. And that's actually not usually how workplace bullying happens. It's, it's very covert where you're being excluded, you know, you're being made fun of sort of passive aggressively in a meeting, you're not being invited to collaborate, you feel othered. Those are the kind of things that happen when you feel that, that bullying. But we're also seeing that just in isolation and loneliness. A lot of people were already feeling lonely and isolated before. We found that with remote employees, they've sort of felt away from the team and not connected. In the data, we've been reading a lot about our younger workforce who haven't established that they have a brand of work ethic or they haven't you know, shown that I'm a creative person. And I've just read a lot around people saying, I started this job in the pandemic. I've not met my boss, not met my coworker. There's no time for one-on-ones. My career stalled. That is a sense of isolation that is also impacting your experience of work. And just the fact that we can't solve for creating these moments of humanity where you share mirror neurons and you were tribe, we've like lost our tribes. And a lot of that is making people just feel more socially anxious. You know, social anxiety has increased 
anxiety. So high from about 4% of people reporting extreme social anxiety to this year around 33%. I mean, that's extraordinary. So that's also impacting people, which can lead to depression, anxiety, all of this fallout. And yet when you have one best friend at work, you have uh, your burnouts reduced by 41%. You actually have better lives. Like you manage stress just in general in your life better. You're more likely to be heard. You're more likely to have psychological safety. You're more likely to get a promotion. So the flip side is like having allies and friendships really matter. And feeling lonely and disconnected really impact your experience of work. Yeah. So the point here is in poor relationships, when we address the issue from a leadership standpoint, is really to bring people together and have pathways for connecting employees with one another, right? And making work fun again. I mean, I feel like the fun has really gone out of work lately, and we've been trying to figure out ways to do that. And I don't think like the four o'clock happy hour on Zoom really works. So there was a lot of things thrown at the wall to see if they'd stick. And some stuff was like, I don't want to do yoga with my... This was actually in the book. Like, I don't want to bend over and sweat on Zoom in front of my boss. Like, I just have no desire to do that. So that was scrapped. It's about figuring out how to use social collaboration platforms for fun. How do we make it so you can just talk about axe throwing or quilting or a movie or share memes or gifts or try to create places in a virtual environment that are healthy. But I also highly recommend that whatever we do, we still have to find ways to pull people back in person. And if you're going fully remote, maybe it's once a quarter. And if you're doing hybrid, don't have people just coming and going, making sure that the teams are in at the same time, I think is really critical. You know, don't have people go into a ghost town at work. These are things that we need to be thinking really strategically about because I I really believe loneliness is going to be a major issue for organizations in the future of work. The fifth cause of burnout, the root cause of burnout is lack of fairness. What can we do to address that? Well, that's really systemic discrimination. We're seeing, like I mentioned, you know, the same people getting promoted. When you look at companies that celebrate diverse talent, make sure that you look at their senior leadership and is it really just in that first and second layer that there's a lot of diversity, but no one is diverse on the board. No one is diverse at the suite. That's how you really have to identify if that's true or not. And also just this issue around women disproportionately impacted this year, that addition of 15 to 20 hours of unpaid labor for them has been catastrophic. And I think what we need to be understanding is that when we look at policy, we need to be looking at equitable paternity and maternity leaves, really critical because we want to make family planning a joint societal accepted part of the way we work. And then we also want to think about just advocating for paid family leave. And organizations we're seeing more are saying, we have now policies like into large organizations declaring, like, I'm going to give you 15 extra days for if there's any sort of event that happens, you can take time off for grief. Or if there's a shutdown at your school and you have to take care of your kid, these are the things that we need to really be advocating because If not, we'll lose so many women in the workforce. And that's that lack of fairness piece where women are just like, forget it. It's not financially viable for me to be at work because of how much volatility that this puts on our family. And because our male counterparts are making more than us, that makes it so that they stay and women go. So again, equity and pay needs to be really important so that there isn't a decision like you make less, you know, women on average make less. So you stay home because I make more. We shouldn't have to make those decisions. I love it. That's totally tackling the very urgent need right now to address DEI strategy. Okay, so the last 
root cause of burnout is an interesting one for me. Values mismatch. Explain. Yes. So what we're seeing a lot this year is just this big sign is sort of emotional distance from your job, that lack of self-efficacy in your job. And when you're working a lot, you tend to sort of forget why you're doing what you're doing. We're seeing that a lot in healthcare, for example, you know, nurses being so connected to the mission of their job, they love that they take care of people and heal people. But when they are so taxed, they forget what their mission is. They forget they're not connected to the values, which is what keeps them you know, inspired and motivated. So we've totally lost that. And you're seeing a lot of people feel that way, you know, where they're feeling like, why did I get into this job? Like I used to be great at it. I was a great accountant. Now, like, do I add any value? You know, is there a purpose to what I do? Am I accomplishing anything? And that's in every field. We're seeing this across all roles where this sort of mental distance from your job, this disconnect from the values of the organization is making you burn out and also Mm -hmm. just leave your job and leave your career entirely. And that's the thing that's scary because people say, oh, it's a great reshuffle. I disagree with that. I think a lot of organizations are telling themselves that, that people just shuffle back and forth. It's not that. It's people leaving their careers, retiring, starting up their own jobs that they've been, or their own, you know, startups that they've been putting off. But now here's the opportunity to do it. They're leaving. We need to rein that in. You know, you talk about the great resignation now. Well, I have my own personal great resignation years ago that was exactly this misalignment of my values and my goals with the organizational's values and goals that had hired me. I got hired on. It wasn't even a month before I realized, holy cow, I'm not a good fit here because of that values mismatch. So, but I caught myself before it went into burnout and I was able to find another job and I exited that company. And I was happy about it because the next company that I worked for very much was a company that aligned with my goals and values. And I was a, I was a happy camper after that. So, you know, I, I've had that same experience and I write about that in the book where, you know, there you go into organizations that they celebrate a certain thing about themselves. You know, they're really touting how great of a place they to work and that you feel really good in the interview. Like this is a great place and you go in and it feels totally disconnected to sort of the bill of goods that you were sold. And I think that that's what, I, and I've been really encouraging people asking questions around specific around what are the ways that you collaborate? How big is your team size? Things that get to potential burnout risk before you get into a job. Because what I'm seeing now is people are saying, I was really burned out, but I don't feel confidence in this new job that I'm not going to burn out. And I also don't feel confident in my skills. Like There's a hangover that they're bringing into this new role because they're not really healed yet. And then you just go right back into another environment that's going to burn you out. There's consequences to that. Absolutely. So here's an interesting thought. This show is mostly listened to by by leaders. And when we talk about a leader's job, we want leaders to be able to prevent their people from burning out, creating the environment for that to happen, right? But what happens when the leader is the one that burns out? So, you know, I have been doing this talk, exhausted leaders leading exhausted teams. It's not like a reorg where you're all of a sudden at the senior level having to tell a whole bunch of people that they're being laid off or where you are in this separate space as as everyone else. And so you can have a bit of, I don't know, like a different level of purview. And it's still challenging. It's still hard to go through change. But what we're going through right now is this collective external trauma that we're dealing with grief, 
There's single moms that are CEOs that are juggling having kids at home and dealing with workload. And so this it's created a bit of a parity in, in just the experience. And yet leaders have a hard time being vulnerable. So they don't say, I'm going through this too. They feel like they have to maintain this level of stoicism. And I've seen organizations that embrace vulnerability and leadership, and they're faring way better than those organizations that aren't. Because they are saying, I will let you know, I don't know what's going on either. You know, like there's so much uncertainty and we've had our fourth wave. I don't know what this means for the future, but right now I know this. And I know that I'm also feeling stressed out. So please give me grace because I might be more frustrated or I might be quicker than normal or, you know, be able to just level set and manage people's expectations. That's all people want. They don't want to feel like they're secret keeping in those higher levels and they're, they don't know what's going on. You just need to be overly transparent right now of all the yeah. times to be that way and to be vulnerable. And that's what I think leaders really need to learn and embrace and not be worried that it will reduce the amount of authority that they have over their team. I love the power of vulnerability and how it's such a leadership strength. I'll never forget bringing a Gary Ridge, the CEO of the WD-40 company, and talking to him. And he says the three most powerful words a leader can say are, I don't know. And (laughs) and that stuck with me. I mean, this is the CEO of WD-40. Come on. It's it's being able to be open and authentic with how you're feeling that, hey, you know what? I'm uncertain too during these times. We're all going through this together. Yeah, I think that's paramount. We do need to recognize that this is not isolated to just our own experience. And maybe we can be a little bit more compassionate to each other and also have a bit more self-compassion, you know, mm-hmm. when we're we're going through it too. Wow. You have brought us so much great information and a wealth of information. I can't wait to dig back into this episode. But let's frame this as we wind down here into the context of love and action. So how does practical love and care from a leadership standpoint play a role in diminishing employee burnout? Well, as you know from the book, I have a chapter dedicated to empathy and empathy and leadership. Another chapter around developing curious cultures. All of that is really rooted in active listening and being able to develop the skill of creating you know, communications and programs and policy and infrastructure that's not based in our own image, but in the image of people we serve. And it's that golden rule 2.0, you know, don't do to others as you had done done unto yourself, but do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. And that's really getting in that space with someone and learning what they're feeling and digging deeper. And when they're saying they're fine, checking in, being a professional eavesdropper and listening to how often people say they're fatigued how often they're saying they're tired, listen to whether they're dealing with a sick parent or putting three kids through college. I mean, there's a lot of pressure that's happening. Take those spinning plates off of people and you do that with empathy. And you know, when I looked at empathy, I get so frustrated because people call it a soft skill and it's not. It's extremely hard to build cognitive empathy. It's very challenging. And to make an organization empathetic is very challenging too. It's like removing all your bias and things that are just built into your genetic thinking. I mean, it's hard. And I looked at the military guidebook, the US military handbook and their leadership handbook. They have empathy as the second tenant of three tenants after warrior ethos. And Mm -hmm. so if you have the US military saying that empathy 
is one of their three tenets of leadership, it's not a soft skill. So let's start to look at that as, as something that is the future of love right. and action is building empathy into how we communicate with one another in our in our teams and organizations and just in life in general. Yeah, I like to say soft is the new hard. <laughs> and, and empathy and compassion and authenticity are now essential skills. You cannot survive as a leader without them. Absolutely. Jennifer, we bring it home traditionally with two questions. Personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? You know what's tugging at my heart right now is just that we are at an inflection point and people are pretty wiped out. And it's the urgency that I feel right now about what's happening within the workforce and with people in general and the hopelessness that people feel. And I want to provide ways and have more people engaged in this discussion so that we can start protecting each other better and not look at it as as something that's sort of a tertiary you know, strategy that sort of lives in the peripherals. I really feel like if we don't do something that there's going to be a lot of very unwell, mentally ill people in our lives and in, in, in our workplaces. And so that's that's something that I'm constantly thinking about and it keeps me awake at night and, and makes me want to do as much communication as I can in the context of my work to make change there. Thanks for sharing that. And finally, you get to bring us home your way with a closing remark or one key takeaway that will keep us inspired. You know, I just think that we all need to say there's no right way to feel right now. And, you know, we also have to have a bit of levity. There's so many moments where, you know, like I talk about the fact that parts of this are pretty ridiculous. The fact that there's people that have turned themselves into cats and lawyers that turn themselves into cats, you know, in videos because they don't want to work the technology. And some of us, we remember the famous viral story of the manager who turned herself into a potato and became known as the potato boss. I mean, there's so many moments that we need to reflect on that think, you know, wow, we did it. Let's pat ourselves on the back a little and say, holy crap, we just are going through a global pandemic and we're surviving and thriving in some situations. And so I, I want people to think, how do you not waste a crisis? You do that by reframing and being real about the grief and the trauma and everything we went through, but then also saying, what have I learned? And what do I want to intentionally take into my practice as a leader to make my workplace amazing? Because I have the potential to do that now, the capacity, everything is up for grabs. So, you know, let's take this time to be intentional about how we want to be, how we want our workplaces to be, because we can do this as leaders. We can really make some exciting changes, you know, in the next, whatever this looks like in the pandemic and into recovery. The book, again, is called The Burnout Epidemic. She is Jennifer Moss, and it's been a blast hanging out with you. If people want to connect with you, learn more about you, where can they go? You know, my website, jennifer-moss.com. And then also, I'm on LinkedIn a lot, and I talk a lot there with folks. So they can reach out to me there at Jen Lee Moss, L-E-I-G-H-M-O-S-S. But I love to get in conversations with people, and I'm always open. You know, I'm not restricted. You don't have to follow me. You can come talk to me. I have learned a lot from you today. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate you coming on and blessing us with your presence and your wealth of knowledge and wisdom as a parent. Now we just need to take it and apply it. Thanks again. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much. Join the conversation and comment on this episode with hashtag Love in Action Podcast. And look for my show notes from this episode on my website, marcelschwantes.com. I'll be sure to include all of Jennifer's 
resources there as well. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow. 